I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined on the virtual sofa by Alice Meller. Unlike a lot of transformation leaders that we have had on the podcast, Alice's career has been exclusively within the financial services sector. However, her diversity has come from the types of programmes that she has been involved with. Mergers, acquisitions, divestments, new technology and general business improvements have all formed key elements of her career. I'm sure you'll find her story really interesting. So let me introduce you to Alice now. Alice, um, thanks for joining us today. Hi. Um, I think it's fair to say that today most of the people that we've had um, on, the, uh, on the podcast have, have operated across multiple sectors and, and that's where they've got their variation from. Um, and, you know, delivering transformation, but across multiple sectors, you've chosen to remain primarily in financial services. There's a story behind everyone's career. So, what do you want to just start by giving us a brief overview and a brief summary? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, financial services. Um, I think a lot of people think it's quite a boring sector, but having nothing to compare it to, either I'm boring or it, or it, or it's not that boring. But I do think that like financial services delivers really amazing change and doesn't necessarily get a great PR um, and it can be really innovative it's just things that people don't find enjoyable so it doesn't get shouted about quite the same um, you know who really wants to talk about insurance or current accounts <laughs> or overdrafts um, so I started work for a company called The Woolwich um came into it via the graduate scheme um, banking graduate schemes at the time kind of asked you as a, a university student to decide whether you wanted to be in sales or risk uh, I didn't know what sales was and I didn't know what risk was um, and the milk round all seemed a bit boring to me I didn't yeah. want to be an accountant having done an economics degree that was the natural progression for me to go into what was called Arthur Anderson at the time or something like that um, the Woolwich was advertising in a quite an innovative fashion um, asking for generic management uh, uh, graduates and it just seemed like the right answer and my mum found the article in the paper and sent it to me <laughs> post uh, so she, oh, it's all your mum's fault it is yeah it really is um and uh, you may choose to edit this out but the application process was hilarious so <laughs> we had to write a uh, it was before it was cool to be customer centric but we had to write a response to a complaint letter where the company had sent a phallic pasta to a woman in the WI by accident we had to write a response to that and that was the application process so whether yeah. um whether I was destined to work for organizations that were a bit quirky I, I, I don't know but um got into the Woolwich graduate scheme and they believed that uh, all leaders of the future needed to have worked in the front line um and have really good experience in working in customer units uh, and understanding who the customers of the organizations were and um, so i ran branches a uh, mm. scary prospect um for a little while i worked in call centers for a little while and then we allowed was allowed to kind of specialize towards the end of the process um and landed in what was called e-commerce at the time so looking at at the time how do you make banking more accessible uh so they were the Woolwich was quite uh innovative it was quite forward thinking and wanted to become multi-channel before a lot of banks were talking about multi-channel as a concept um so we were doing I think going, I think going back to what you were saying at the start about uh, banking being 
uh, people viewing banking as non-sexy. You know, banking and financial services have been really at the forefront of a lot of the technology advances, haven't they, in, in e-commerce in particular. Um, um, I, I remember working in, uh, I, I was in banking originally, left in 96, but, you know, the, the transition between, in the, in the sort of 30-odd 30, 30 years, um, they, were, they were ahead of the curve in lots and lots of situations. And with additional complications of security, you know, you work for big banks, you have the additional limelight of nowadays the, the, the media and the government sections looking over you and the regulations and the, all good things, but they bring with them additional complications for delivering change that a lot of actual retail organisations can bypass. Um, so worked for the Woolwich at a point where we were thinking about WAP mobile phones. Do you remember? The, yes, yes, big ones. Green mobile <laughs> phones. Uh, we tried to encourage people to do their banking uh, via digital TV. So when uh, Sky had the keyboards, we were testing out whether people wanted to bank on TV and things like that. So learned a lot of my change stripes in a quite forward-thinking, innovative place that wasn't wasn't scared of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and really, before agile was was developed as a concept, they were working in a pretty agile fashion. Yeah. Um, and you can't separate what was you and from from what became you. But that's that's where I kind of built my business analysis stripes. Um, then moved at a point where Woolwich was taken over, moved into Barclays, um, and did a lot of change around uh, offshoring processes at a point where banks were looking for a different way of doing things. Yeah. Um, to, to save cost but also um i think there's some really good customer service that can be delivered from from offshore units um if delivered in the right way so moved some of the first barclays voice processes offshore where they opened up contact to their customers from uh, indian call centers um so a lot of work around uh, you know what accent do we want people to have yeah uh, what call themselves how open do we want to be about where they're located um and a bit of kind of pioneering about making sure we did it right um and not just cheaply but in a kind of a sustainable fashion where these people would build the knowledge and skills to deliver good customer service um and part of that was done in a an area called invoice finance which provides um business lending to uh, organizations through factoring and invoice discounting worked with a team of people there and set up a strategic change function for them, uh, looking at how did they achieve double-digit income growth uh, pre-financial crisis um, and needed an awful lot of change around uh, people, technology, yeah. profiles, um, and then moved with those people across to um, RBS Invoice Finance right. and worked with them uh, to do similar activities. And... Um, worked in RBS, worked through into the central functions uh, just at the point where Sir Fred Goodwin uh, exited the building along with the rest of the cash and um, worked, uh, so worked in RBS during the financial crisis yeah. um, and was trying to launch strategic programmes that helped at that point. So at the point where Stephen Hester joined, making sure we had good strategic programmes in place to address some of the issues, so bad debt. Uh, that kind of thing so I was working in business banking at the time and obviously a lot of businesses were struggling and had we got the right structures in place to see the alerts at the point where those businesses were starting to struggle um, and then decided at that point it was the right time to become an independent contractor 
um, effectively making a career decision between staying permanent and going up a leadership line or Ooh. sticking in delivery and getting the experience in a different way. Uh, so I moved into Lloyd's and worked on a program looking at the sale of the joint venture of Sainsbury's Bank. So jointly owned uh, as what Tesco Bank was, but this yeah. was Lloyd's venture with Jay Sainsbury and their contract triggers were starting to come into focus um, and they were looking at whether Jay Sainsbury wanted to to buy the joint venture. Um, it wasn't a priority. They were looking at integration at the time, so the, so the integration of Halifax into Lloyd's. Um, and then subsequently, obviously, what was called Verdi, so the sale of the branches as a result of the, the government intervention. Yeah. Um, so we were running that in parallel to both those pieces and a smaller piece, but fundamentally, how do you exit a bank from a bank, which is quite a complicated thing to do. Um, Absolutely. And looking at, looking at the transaction for that, so... Um, I'm not a lawyer, um, thank goodness. And um, but how do you, as a change person and transformation program, provide into the lawyers the structure they need for the contract? So the dependencies, the timescales, the costs, what we are and aren't willing to commit to as an organisation, what we are and aren't able to do. So provided that um, bridge between the transition team looking at how we were existing a bank and the transaction team who were kind of putting the contracts in place. Um, so how, did you, did, how, did, how did you pull that together though? Because I think that's always an interesting, um, a, a, an interesting area um, in sort of the M&A type of world, mm. um, where, irrespective of which side you're on, as, as, as a sort of uh, a change leader or transformation leader in that process, how you interact with, as you say, the, the deal room or, or whatever whatever the, the, the terminology is, um, and, and delivering um, commitments almost that actually you, 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 you're having to make um, in, a, in, a, in a, an environment of massive uncertainty. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, in, in reality, you just use the governance of, of transformation, really. And I wouldn't say I was governance hungry but I do think there's key factors in change delivery that bring real control and structure um, so all those things that often projects do for the sake of ticking a box like having a risk matrix become massively important because it's about saying these are the milestones that we have and we believe we can deliver against but actually these are the risks against those milestones yeah. um, these are this is our confidence levels at our ability to deliver these pieces um, dependencies become massively important in terms of we can only do these factors if they deliver these factors and you just deliver the facts into the transaction team and allow the commercial brains to use that information to um, agree what we would wouldn't wouldn't commit to um, and any kind of uh, latitude or leeway they'd want to build in yeah and it's very much like my belief about how you manage stakeholders you've just got to present the information and you've got to allow uh, the stakeholders to have the information they need to make good decisions on. And that's not about giving them all of the information. It's about giving them the information they need to make good decisions. And it was just yeah. the same within the transaction room. Um, I think, like you say, it, it, makes, it makes those um, uh, risk analysis and, and the mitigation of those risks absolutely critically important, doesn't it? Because um, getting it wrong and the, the financial consequences of that in terms of the warranties associated with the transaction can be absolutely massive and uh, um, so it just really brings the light upon to as you say those core processes that in some cases in, in, in more 
um, internally focused programs almost get yeah we'll do it but you know not not with not with any real sense of of, of ownership um become absolutely critical in in, in a transaction led sort yeah of and you have to it really t- teaches you to be really clear um really clear on what you mean and what you wouldn't wouldn't be confident about um and you don't get much you don't get much space you're not you're not mm. the most important person in the room so you don't get much time um so you have to be really succinct and pick your moment and fascinating to let watch the conversations play out um between the negotiators and how the lawyers choose to position certain pieces um but it's about information and that's what stakeholder management is about it's about the right information at the right time to allow the right decisions um absolutely so I, I interrupted, but I, I, I thought it was quite an interesting area to, to explore a bit deeper. It was, it was amazing. And options analysis, I mean, we just went around and so every time something moved, you had to reanalyze what your options were off the back of it, etc. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I worked uh, on that in Lloyd's and the, the deal got announced in 2013. So um, allowed then exit myself and allowed the transaction, uh, sorry, the transition team to to then do the, to the hard work in many ways um exiting a bank from a bank isn't easy yeah um, uh, so then moved from lloyd's into the co-op uh, and did some work there where they were um at that point they were in in some financial difficulty they were exiting from the group they'd gotten a lot of press coverage it was yeah. quite difficult times for them as an organization um, and worked in the area where they were looking to exit various assets um to help with the balance sheet position um, so less information available on that piece, um, but really interesting working for a very different organisation that values yeah. has different values, and be able to compare that to some of the bigger banks where perhaps the perception is they don't have a really good value structure, mm. but actually they really do. Like some of the big banks have really really good value structures that people work to and understand. Um, yeah, I, I got involved in uh, years ago when um, uh, Britannia and Co-op came together, and uh, I'd worked previously in Britannia quite a lot, and they they were very much a values-led um, uh, organisation. Um, but again, mergers and acquisitions, I suppose, always going to be challenging. The cultural differences between two value-led organisations uh, was, was was massive, and 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 I think uh, initially everyone thought, well. You know, we're we, we're both mutual. We're both you know we're both values driven. Should be should, not not a piece of cake, but it should be relatively straightforward. It wasn't. No, and it was interesting. So the Woolwich, uh, the well, the, uh, relatively junior, but the PR at the time was Barclays was taking over the Woolwich to learn from this kind of slightly more entrepreneurial, uh, innovative kind of part of the Woolwich. Um, and it never manifested itself and it's really funny you look on it like 20 years later and actually Barclays is leading the way in many ways in terms of banking and more innovative and their branches of the future were out first HSBC ahead of them in many ways but you know they've now got a lot of these agile units and their Mm. apps are really amazing and a lot of the banks were playing catch up five, ten years ago. They, they took over the Woolwich and they lost so much, or it felt like as an employee, you lost so much of what the Woolwich was about just yeah. by becoming part of a bigger 
Yeah, but I've, I've had experience again, and I think that's one of the challenges where um, large organisations take over small organisations on the pretense of we want to learn from the smaller organisation to be more adaptable or to be more entrepreneurial or whatever the, whatever the phraseology is. And the one in particular, um, I got involved in the launch of Egg um, many years ago, and ultimately Citibank took them over. Um, and um, their rationale for taking them over was they wanted to um, uh, introduce this much more sort of agile, flatter structure, um, uh, much more sort of um, quick-moving uh, capability into Citibank. And within six months, um, they'd stifled all of the innovation and 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 um, you know natural sort of exuberance that was in egg uh, by overlaying um, the Citibank processes on an entrepreneurial business, and it just didn't work, and people left. Yeah, and and actually, at one point, um, you could look across the Barclays leadership team, and I think there was one of the Woolwich people left, and that was in mortgages, and that obviously was the biggest element of the Woolwich that remained within Barclays. They continued to sell Woolwich mortgages. Um, all the other inspirational leaders had gone. Yeah. Um, and you were left with, I mean, Barclays was a great organisation. Uh, it's very different now to the one I worked for um, 15 years ago. But it had some great leaders, but they weren't, they hadn't somehow, and, and perhaps this is the Woolwich in me, they had, it really felt like they hadn't taken the best of the Woolwich. They'd lost yeah. it somehow. Um, and maybe all, maybe in reality, all they wanted was the market leading products and, and they got those, right? So they got an amazing current account and they got really good mortgages, etc. Perhaps they ultimately got what they wanted. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So you, you've obviously been involved in lots of different types of programs and transformations. You've done work with, uh, as you say, separations, integrations. Uh, I know from, from speaking previously, you've done a lot of work around sort of technology enabled programs. Do, do you get a sense that any one of those are more difficult to land than others? Or is it just dependent upon the organisation and the people involved? Honestly, I think burning platform programmes for me are the most exciting to deliver. Yeah. Um, and whether it's a cheat that you've got, uh, you know, absolutely got to deliver something by a deadline and therefore yeah. you, you naturally have a level of motivation of you and the people around you. I think the takeaway for that is the best change programs, the most successful ones, are those with a really clear mandate that's brought into really clear objectives yeah, yeah. Um, that has a sense of time about it. I like the urgent ones because I like the the drive and the the excitement that a burning platform brings, and it and it creates real focus. You, yeah. you don't fill your time with things that aren't critical to the to the kind of the, the process, and you can call that critical path if you like. But it it's the behavioural stuff that sits around some of the change processes, like critical path mapping or whatever, yeah, yeah. that makes it exciting. So I think. Um, no, I don't think it's the nature of the change. I think it's the change and the situation that it sits within that really defines what's hard, what's less hard. Delivering something that an organisation doesn't want is 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 un. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not pleasant, um, and it's very hard to do, and it's yeah. very rarely successful. I agree. I agree. But I think it's interesting because what you were saying there is that you, that to be successful. A program needs to have focus, it needs to be time-bound, it needs to be very clear on what its objectives are, 
and 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 it needs people sort of all, all, all moving in the same direction all those things can be achieved without a burning platform but all too often without a burning platform it's it you don't get everything aligned do you and and uh, and, and, and I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. One, one of the key things I find is, is if, it hasn't, if there isn't a burning platform, it's much more difficult to get all of those things aligned. Yeah. Because politics come into play. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's no, no changes delivered without politics. It's, no. part, it's kind of part of it, isn't it? Um, and you never truly have alignment. What I'd say is uh, Lloyd's in particular were very successful at saying this is our top priority. This is what we're focusing our resources on delivering. And, and maybe that was because they had no choice uh, around integration and then uh, Verdi in terms of the sale of the branches, etc. Um, but they were very good at saying this is our, you know, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. Uh, whereas organisations that have less clarity around that, I've found it much harder, much yeah. harder to create and carve out. And you can use the same techniques but they're just more successful where there's much greater clarity and uh, consistency across the leadership team or, you know, or an area around exactly what it is you're trying to do and, and why. Yeah, um, I, I think um, some of the experiences I've had with, with, with those organisations that are maybe not as clear is that they try to do too much too soon yeah, um, yeah. and have multiple large-scale programmes operating at the same time and I know absolutely that can happen in some cases it has to happen um, but not having an oversight and not having a, a clarity around how each uh, each is dependent upon the other yeah. um, it, it, and, and that I think that's where, where I found a lot of organizations fall down um, where naturally by putting in a, a, a small additional layer they could they, they could um, uh, they, they could be very successful. Yeah, and I think that comes down to brave decisions, doesn't it? Like, um, <clears throat> is anyone ever brave enough to say, actually, we're just not going to do that? Yeah. Or, um, yes, I understand there's some benefits associated with that. I can absolutely see a clear rationale, but that's going to have to wait because we're going to do these two or three things. Uh, and we're going to do them really, really well. And then we'll decide what we're going to do next once we've done those. And that's really brave leadership I think and it doesn't always exist because obviously there's the temptation to say oh well you know if we did that that would keep this stakeholder happy and we'll give that stakeholder a little bit of the pie and etc etc and you start eroding what would be quite a strong position. As, as a transformation leader then what's what's your role what, in managing some of those challenges? I mean I think as change leaders we're there to facilitate yes have an opinion but actually, we're there to um, to facilitate, to ask the right questions, to to challenge an organisation, and be willing to look across the wider picture uh, and ask a question that might generate a different thought process or a different outcome. Mm. Um, and I think, like I said earlier, I think for me, we have a massive responsibility to present information in a way that allows good decisions and enables good decisions. That's my responsibility to a stakeholder in a change position because it's about assimilating data in a way that can be digested without presenting too much. Uh, yeah. I think that's a real skill. 
Um, and I think as a change leader, as opposed to, I think there's a lot of people in change that don't do those things. They're there to, you know, keep charts up to date and track things. And that's fantastic because those roles need to exist. But I think that's the difference between the doers and the leaders in change. Yeah. As a change leader, you need to help the organisation understand what you're trying to do. You need to help the organisation buy into what you're trying to do. And you need to help the leaders make good decisions to, to lead that change through to its conclusion um, and step out of the detail. Yeah, yeah. And I think a path that's trodden by a change leader or transformation director can can vary quite significantly from that facilitation type of role. They can get into the tell mode quite quickly and, and take ownership of that transformation. Um, when in reality, um, you know, that it's the it's the it's the business um the uh, the functional leads or the, di- the, you know, the 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 board need to have ultimate accountability, and all too often I find is that the accountability is is delegated to the transformation director or the transformation leader. Yeah, and I think it's a really tough balance, isn't it? Because in many ways you want to take ownership because you want to drive it forward and you want it to be successful, but you if if you take too much ownership you can't do that step back that says are we still doing the right things or and and challenge in that way and I think the other mistake I've seen commonly is is people use the change processes and present too much of it externally say you present too much information people aren't interested in Gantt charts ultimately you need to use them as a change uh, person they're there as a tool but stakeholders don't want to see them they want to know they exist what they want you to do is present them with the relevant components of that yeah. and drill it up and I think that's the other common mistake I see where too many steering packs have too much content in them that is you know change toolkit content and not enough that facilitates drive decision making removing blockers uh, challenge etc yeah um, yeah you, you remind me of a, uh, a program I got involved in uh, a couple of years ago um, but they were doing a major transformation um, and putting a, um, a putting new technology in and changing ways of working and lots of and, and massive um, cost reduction exercise. Um, and every month there was a, a, a steering group pack of this um, one program that would be about 110, between 110 and 120 pages of information. And I got brought in to, to, to do a review. And, um, and my first observation was to, to, the, to the program leads at the time, do you think anybody ever reads this 120 pages? And, and oh, yeah, yeah, well, they don't because they haven't got the time to read the 120 pages. No. Uh, and there was no executive summary. Or there was a page that said executive summary, but it wasn't an executive summary. It was a contents page. Um, and, and, yeah, you know, you can you can have these really what what looks a really really good pack but it was meaningless because no one ever read it and i think it's about those ones are it, forgive the phrase but it's like putting the monkey on someone else's shoulder isn't it so if i tell you absolutely everything then i can't be held responsible for the thing i haven't told you yeah um and so i've told you everything and therefore it's not my fault if something's not right yeah. and it's often there's often something underlying a pack of that level of detail that's behavioural about why is it you feel you need to tell them all of this? Yeah, yeah. Um, have they asked for it at a point in time? Because often that's an evolution, isn't it? They say, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we had a slide that told us this? 
um, oh, could we just have a one pager that summarised X? And we've all heard the one pager kind of scenario. Um, and, and no one challenges and says, well, why do you need to know that? What, why, what information is, is there that that's giving you that helps you make better decisions? Um, and, and packs just grow, don't they? They more okay, yeah, after a one pager one month, it becomes a standard one pager, and what should be a you know a, a small pack becomes morphed and uh, balloons yeah. into, like you say, hundreds and hundreds of pages of nothing and really good information. But it doesn't help drive the process. It doesn't help people understand what's going on. No, and and and, and I think what what also happens when you get those um, um, big booklets of, of information every month is that you can't actually focus upon the important stuff because it gets dwarfed with all the rubbish that's in there. Yeah, yeah. And the chances are, actually, if you ask the question, there'll be someone that knows what's important, but actually it often hides hides the fact that the key people don't know what's important Um, and the quality of conversations isn't there. I was saying to um, someone the other day, I remember starting a job and I'll, I'll keep it nameless. And I went to the first update meeting and I thought, oh my God, this, this update meeting's amazing. Like they're all sitting there and they're all talking really knowledgeably about what they're going, what they're working on and need to make sure when I go and present what my program's doing that I present as accurately. And about four or five weeks in of going to this meeting, I, I kind of realized why they were so good at it. It's because they basically said the same thing week in, week out. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that. They were, it, was, it was ultimately the same script week in, week out because there was no real new progress. And yeah. it was a, a program of programs. who so was a collection of program managers reporting nothing. Um, and you add up the amount of money that's wasted in that scenario yeah, where you've absolutely. got five or six program managers all sitting around not being challenged appropriately or not delivering and, and no one calling it out. It was... It was sad to see in many ways really yeah and i think again as you say it, it, it's that i think that's the role of the transformation leader to to obviously that be that conduit between the team to and, and making sure that he or she knows the information that that's required um and is available uh, but making it so succinct that actually um if if the um if the sponsors or the key stakeholders are asking for stuff then having the um, um, the wherewithal to go back and ask and question why they need it, mm. um, and 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 that's if, if you get that right, you can have a very very um, focused pack that delivers the information that the stakeholders need and encourages conversation on the right areas uh, yeah. that, that drive to decisions. Yes, agreed, agreed. Transformation is stressful. Um, for everybody, um, whether that's the project team or the, or the people within, within the organisation that are going through the transformation. How do you manage that stress personally? So, well, I've got to admit, I'm not very good at um, uh, going out for a walk during the working day. Um, I think a lot of people do that really successfully, don't they? And they say, oh, at lunchtime, I absolutely need to go out and get some fresh air and go for a walk. Um, at my most stressful times, I'm most likely to be sitting at a desk eating a sandwich whilst downing a bottle of water. Um, but at weekends, I don't work weekends. Uh, it's been a long, long time since I've dedicated some personal time to to work at a weekend because I do think you need the the time to shut down. That's separation. Um, so it's been much more relevant in lockdown, but walking, do a lot of walking, um, 
and me and my husband have walking steering committees about whatever whether it's things we're struggling with at work you know you just want to chat through or life we make life decisions whilst we're out walking yeah um and just get some fresh air and clear your head you know you have much better conversations when you can just kind of take your time over them um and then holidays i mean i'm absolutely a a work to live um i love holidays and i think everyone should go on holiday for more than a week you know two weeks is is great because i think the second week's materially different but like three four weeks just allows your body to forget and then you come back a different person you read baseline as an as a contractor i get that in yeah. between contracts sometimes as well you know that proper re-baselining what's important why were you absolutely stressed about something that didn't really matter you know if that meeting was two days later did it really matter no it didn't um but it felt like it did at the time um uh so i think yeah those are the two big ones for me really so if you um all your experience um over the uh, the many years that you've been working within financial services um the one thing that you take into your next role um, that you think is the critical part of um, successful delivery? What would that be? Um, a really clear mandate. And I know that's uh, mandates are very kind of perhaps two word, but I don't mean it in that sense. I think all change and all, like, as an individual, making sure my mandate is clear mm-hmm. um, and I can talk to people about it, what I'm doing and why. Um, and then rolling that into the change. So why are you delivering the change and why? Uh, sorry, what change are you delivering and why? Um, is massive. If people don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, how are you going to get them bought in? And I think the change tools all then just need to fall in line with that. But if you've not got that clear, if you've not got it clear in yourself, in your team, in your stakeholders, in the organisation, you it's a recipe for disaster and you may well deliver stuff and you will deliver stuff, but is it to the best of your ability? Is it the best change you could deliver? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, so that's sort of what they, they start with the end in mind almost. It's being clear about where you're going. Yeah. Uh, and, and all and too that, often people move, move too quickly into the change, don't they? Without stepping back and saying, okay, how do we know whether we're going to be successful? You know, at what point do we need to, and be clear about what success looks like yeah and i think that's critical in um transformation um you know projects deliver an output programs deliver an outcome and that's mm-hmm. much harder to document it's much harder to to get consensus on because you've got a, a collection of things that all drive towards that but if you don't document it though that collection of pieces of work or cultural change or system change won't all drive in the same direction Um, And you can get away with it on a project level because you can define I'm going to deliver a system at the end of it or I'm going to deliver a new structure at the end of it. But in a program, in a bigger transformational change, uh, you've got so many moving parts. If there isn't a really clear goal or outcome or objective, they're all going to have delivered in slightly disparate ways and it's not going to be the best quality change you could deliver. Great. Well, thank you very much, Alice. That's uh, that was really good. Um, I think uh, what well, we're up to about thirty minutes or so now. So, uh, if we bring that to a close, um, we occasionally get some questions coming in. If you're comfortable answering those, that'd be uh, that that'd be good. Um, and uh, yeah, th- th- thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, thanks a lot, Tony. <laughs> Once again, thanks, Alice. 
If you want to get in touch with Alice, or indeed any of the guests on previous shows, we always include a link to their LinkedIn profiles within the show notes. The Transformation Leaders Hub is going from strength to strength, and opportunities are now starting to come through, so please do take a look. We are constantly developing new ways of helping members to build their network and open up new career opportunities, so it'd be great to get your feedback. I look forward to seeing you in the clubhouse very soon. Bye for now.